Well, welcome to this evening's edition of the Ecology Hour. And I'm going to start with a slightly saucy question. What are you wearing? Uh, Don't worry, this isn't a proposition. (laughs) We're going to consider how our fibre for our clothes and bedding and our home textiles is grown. And what effect does that have on our local ecosystems? Can it ever be beneficial to our biodiversity for carbon sequestration, as well as provide us with a valued product? Well, we're going to start that conversation with Heather Podol, Partnership and Advocacy Coordinator for the non-profit Fibershed. Heather will guide us through the climate beneficial practices associated with California fibre production. We'll then visit with John Bailey, Director at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre, who describes the recent addition of a hedgerow to their site and the multi-benefits of the addition of these plants to a working landscape. But let's start with our conversation with Heather Podol from Fibershed. I started by asking Heather to explain what is a fiber shed. Perfect. Well, I love that you start with um, the analogy of a watershed, which is a term a lot of people are familiar with. Um, Fiber shed was coined as a term by our founder, Rebecca Burgess, to help people imagine that they could consider um, the geographic region around their home where they source materials to support their life could include fiber as well as um, food and other things that we need. People have started to use the word food shed um, more commonly in the food and agriculture movement. And so fiber shed extends that idea that um, we can have a relationship with the landscape around us and source fiber and textiles um, for our lives from that regional area. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I was thinking back to that kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of the, the basic things we need just to be comfortable. And of course, fiber is one of those things to make keep ourselves warm and protected. Absolutely. And yet we often forget it when we're thinking of our kind of our footprint, I think. Yes. I mean, yeah, clothing is our it's our first form of shelter. It's our it's our most intimate and, and critical form of shelter. And and I think people often um forget that food and fiber have historically been so integrated in the way that humans provide for their needs. Food and fiber have not been, um, you know, separated the way that they are um, often in our society. And so we're, we're excited about the work we're doing to help kind of reintegrate and um, highlight the intertwined and interdependent nature of food and fiber systems. Mm. Can you give us just a few examples then of the kind of places that you might be sourcing your fiber from um, when we we think of this context? Yeah, so where where we're based here in Marin County, um, we work across Northern and Central California in our Northern California fiber shed region. Um, But here on the landscape um, where I'm sitting right now, our our learning center is based at Black Mountain Ranch. So we're just outside of Point Reyes Station. Um, And there are a lot of sheep um, being raised here in Marin County. So that's that's probably the easiest form of fiber to see on the landscape around us here. Um, But in addition to sheep producing wool, there are um, quite a a lot of alpacas. There's actually an alpaca farm just adjacent to this farm um, here on um, just just across the hill from us. 
Um, there also are cotton producers um, in our in our fiber shed community network that we're working with, um, both in Northern California and and more heavily in Central California in the in the Central Valley. Gosh, it's interesting to hear of locally produced cotton. Um, and I guess that brings me quite neatly into, so one thing that I feel like I've heard a lot more in the media recently is the very negative impacts of growing cotton. And that extends, of course, to other animal agriculture. I feel like, of course, we hear a lot about um, how um, reducing our use of animal agriculture and animal products will be beneficial for our our carbon footprint and our impact on climate change. So what you're telling me perhaps flies in the face of that a little bit. Can you help guide me through this tricky territory? <laughs> well, as you're pointing out, there's there's a lot more nuance um, when you dive into any of these, these particular issues, um, either on the side of animal agriculture or cotton. Um, and with cotton in particular, um, you know, we, we're interested in looking more closely at the data on what is, um, what is the, the water use and the water impact of the cotton systems where we're working and, um, you know, what's, what's true about the concerns that are raised um, about water generally in agriculture and how that's impacted um, and what's possible to improve upon, but maybe what are some misunderstandings as well. Um, comparing cotton to other crops and looking at the actual water usage, um, which isn't necessarily as high as, as people um, always think about. But we're also thinking about water usage in the sense that water is a cycle that's continual. Um, and the impact on water, um, in addition to just thinking about volumes, knowing that water can cycle, when we think about um, chemical use and water contamination, that becomes a much larger concern in many cases than just the water use if it's filtered back through an ecosystem where it's generating a healthy cycle. Um, so we're interested in, in supporting producers who are trying to reduce that impact of water contamination and, um, and the, the impact more broadly on the ecosystem of, of the way that cotton is grown. So um, we've talked a bit about cotton, but I'm also interested in, you know, the animal agriculture side. We've heard a lot in the media again about negative impacts of animal agriculture. But I, I know that the producers that you work with care very deeply about their impacts on their ecosystems. So can you explain what that might look like? Thank you. Yes. So in, in our producer community, we're working um, closely with a lot of sheep ranchers, um, and um, people raising sheep for certainly the products um, that we're familiar with um, of, of meat and wool and dairy that sheep can provide, but they're using those animals and bringing them onto their landscapes as a tool to improve ecosystem health. Um, we're working with grazers who are very focused on um, wildfire impacts of of fuel accumulation. Um, so those sheep are in many cases providing really important services to reduce fuel load. Um, they're also recycling nutrients. They're being um, managed. The grazing systems can be managed in very different ways. Um, and we're working um, in just such exciting ways with emerging research and technical proficiency on grazing systems to, to improve 
carbon cycling, to improve plant health, to improve native plant community um, structure and abundance, um, and the way that, that those grazing animals are managed. Um, often ranchers are, are really inspired and, and looking to the model of native plant and animal communities that would be on this land or would have been on this land when those grasslands evolved. Um, and knowing that grazers were such an important part of that ecosystem. So um, I'm interested, I know one of the things that you um, have worked with producers on is this idea of, well, I guess, I guess where I'd quite like to start is I have heard of the potential for wool, which actually is climate beneficial. Mm. Is, is it possible? And how do you come about measuring that? What would, how do you figure that one out? <laughs> well, yeah, that, and that ties in nicely to um, what I was just saying about some of the ranchers we've worked with and um, gotten to know whose who's approach to their landscape really is very grounded in an understanding of what is the health of this, of this landscape and how can I improve that health? Because this is um, a place that, that I care about being strong and healthy through generations. Um, and so we're working with many of our producers on developing carbon farm plans. This is a tool that the Carbon Cycle Institute developed um, to help use a, a framework that um, was actually came from the NRCS planning um, in conservation practices, applying a lens of carbon management um, to, that, to that planning framework and looking at what are all the different ways on this landscape that we could improve carbon sequestration, improve carbon buildup in the plants and also in the soil. What are the practices we know have been proven um, through the work of the NRCS, through the work of, of researchers around the world um, to see the benefits um, in, whether it's above ground or often very largely below ground carbon stocks of implementing conservation practices and then um, using a tool that the NRCS has developed called Comet, Comet Farm and Comet Planner. These are um, wonderful modeling tools based on uh, a very rigorous body of research on carbon sequestration through various carbon farming uh, conservation practices. These tools developed by NRCS allow technical service providers and, and farmers or ranchers themselves to um, have a a projection of the impact that a certain practice might have on their land. So if you're a, a farmer in Mendocino County and you have a certain acreage and you, you know you wanna implement a silvopasture maybe, um, which is planting trees inside of a pasture that animals would graze under, um, you can use this tool that NRCS developed to estimate what the carbon impact over time would be for five acres, 10 acres of a silvopasture. So it's a model, it's not based on direct measurement, um, but it's based on science that comes out of direct measurement. And it, it gives us a really easy um, way over across the landscape. It's, it's reliable, particularly across um, a larger area when you aggregate it um, across a large farm or a across um, a community of farms, which is how we're largely using this. Um, so within, within one, one farm or ranch's landscape, you can project out using this carbon farm planning framework that um, our, a lot of RCDs are now using um, to help farmers understand um, and plan for, for their um, 
their future practices, what the impact could be. And, and then you can actually, um, we've, we've been able to compare some life cycle analysis um, on what, what is the carbon impact, for instance, of raising wool? What, what does it take across a sheep ranching operation um, to derive that, that wool product? Um, and we have some um, you know, pretty grounded LCAs that, that give us an, at least an, an idea of what that looks like. And by well, comparing that- Sorry, what was an LCA? Oh, thank you. Life cycle analysis. Oh, so looking you. at all of the inputs um, of, of carbon impacts into um, an operation um, and what, what that would be um, yeah. to, to have a sense of, you know, what's the footprint of producing this wool? And when we compare that to the carbon impacts of the practices that, that a ranch is going to overlay onto what they're doing, they're going to start applying compost on a certain acreage of, of rangelands. Um, they're going to implement um, maybe a silvopasture, a hedgerow, windbreaks, um, all of these practices that are associated with a certain quality of um, quality and quantity of, of carbon drawdown um, from the atmosphere into the plants and soil, we can compare that with the impact um, that's been modeled for what wool production takes. Um, and then by doing that, we can see, and this is, this is where we've um, been able to point this kind of hopeful picture toward climate beneficial, um, toward climate benefiting um, actual production of natural fibers, when you see that the drawdown that's possible on a landscape that's carefully tended can be more than um, the carbon that's used to produce those goods. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to take us back to basics because I need that most of the time. Um, Thank you. What we're talking about is, you know, I've got this picture in my head of a sheep grazing somewhere. Yeah. And um, what we're talking about is helping to create a plan for somebody's working landscape, ranch, farm, where they're helping to pull that carbon, which is in the atmosphere that we hear so much about as being a problem, down into plant materials mostly, and then maybe down further down into the soil through their roots, or you mentioned compost as well. Is that the main thing that we're talking about in, in the kind of planning, the carbon farm planning that we're talking about? Yeah, so the, the sheep grazing um, becomes part of a larger ecosystem of activities on the farm. So um, the, the direct impact of the sheep eating grass and um, being managed in a way that, that can just in that grazing system begin improving soil health and improving soil carbon sequestration, soil carbon, um, also fits into um, this larger picture of what practices are happening on that landscape to support the, the whole operation. So a hedgerow on the property um, or a windbreak or a, or a silvopasture that's integrating mm -hmm. trees and, and grazing um, becomes part of the larger picture. And mm -hmm. so that's what the carbon farm plan is taking into account is what's the larger picture of how this land is being managed um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With, it, with the context of producing food and fiber products. Excellent. Thank you. I love this idea of somebody who we might look at from the outside. Oh, they're a sheep farmer. 
or a rancher, but also you should double up and give them the badge of honor of a carbon farmer. I love this kind That's of it. this concept, right? That this is another thing that you might not see as much, but it's, it's happening. Um, so there's two things I want to address here. One of them, I feel like I want to, um, in, in a, a full disclosure, recognize that you know, my job here as a community educator at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Center, um, we, we do have a carbon farm plan um, in the makings on our site. And we work very closely with you guys at Fibershed and also with our local Mendocino County Resource Conservation District, the RCD. Um, and I just want to let folks know that, you know, if they're interested in going through this process, I know we've greatly appreciated both the RCD and yourselves at Fibershed in guiding us through this. Um, so I, Heather, I don't know if you have any tips or ideas. If somebody's listening to this, there's a, um, they have a, a piece of land that they're managing or own, um, and they're interested in this, where would you see as a good starting point for them? Well, I think the resource conservation districts, the RCDs are an incredible resource across the state, um, particularly here in, in Northern California and in the Northern Coast region. We have um, some really strong RCDs um, with great resources. So we always encourage producers to start with reaching out to their RCD um, to just see what kinds of opportunities there might be to get support for carbon farm planning or, you know, other conservation planning that ties into carbon farming. Uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service um, through, the, through the federal, at the federal level also has local offices and often collaborate closely with RCDs. So sometimes there are regions where that, that office is more active um, and is able to provide services as well. Cooperative extension offices also can offer, offer a lot of support for this type mm -hmm. of work on farm. Mm -hmm. So starting and calling one of your local versions of those things, NRCS, the RCD, or your cooperative extension might well be a good starting point, right? Yes. Um, I guess I, I, I'm imagining, again, I'm, I'm in that position of having a piece of land and being kind of intrigued by this Um but I think one of the big questions in my mind would probably be, will it cost me money, right? Is it going to cost me money? And is there going to be any benefit to me in the long run of how I can market the product that I then have to sell? Oh, those, are, those are two great questions. Um, you know, in terms of the, the costing money, this is something we, we come up with um, a lot with our producers because often people have the desire to do a lot of conservation work on their farm or ranch, but don't have the resources to put that forward when the payoff is going to be longer term. So um, we've been really excited that the state of California over the last few years has developed the Healthy Soils Program that's run through um, the state of California's um, Department of Food and Agriculture, CDFA. Um, they are going to be opening up applications again later this fall for, for more Healthy Soils Program um, funding. So this has become a really important source of support, you know, in our fiber shed producer community and just broadly throughout the agriculture community in California for allowing, um, you know, public resources to be directed towards supporting this work on farms where it really has a benefit far beyond just to that farm. This is um, this is providing 
ecosystem benefits um, for everyone in the region. It's providing carbon drawdown benefits um, for all of us, um, not just in California, but more broadly. So um, these resources are, are there to help offset those costs um, for producers. And they can't always cover the whole cost, um, but, but it does seem to cover for many producers enough of the cost that it makes it accessible for them to start implementing some of these practices they otherwise couldn't. And then on the marketing side, um, yes, that's that's a really important part of our work at Fibershed has been developing markets for climate beneficial wool. And, and that's, um, that's a program that Fibershed developed specifically to match carbon farm planning um, into a verification structure that would help um, producers be able to clear more clearly tell their story and and help buyers and brands understand um, what the benefits of the work that they're doing are. So the climate beneficial program uh, helps us work with producers who are interested in doing carbon farm work um, and puts it into a structure with the carbon farm planning framework um, and then a verification framework that that Fibershed implements. Um, to help open access to markets for for brands and companies um, and just individuals who want to support farmers and ranchers who are doing that work. And I'm sure, I think I know the answer to this, but is there a market for it? Are are people interested? And I think we're so so used to the fast fashion world, right? Cheap, fast fashion, that I'm kind of intrigued. Are you seeing a shift? Are people starting to ask for more? That's our experience, um, that there certainly is a growing market for this. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of pieces of getting the whole supply chain in, in place that um, we and our partners have been working on. Um, we've been able to put together a, um, or, or help facilitate the development of a pool of wool through the Climate Beneficial Program um, that took off during the pandemic in 2020. And Um, was really able to provide a market for some of our existing producers that they wouldn't otherwise have had access to at a time during the pandemic when um, the international wool market was was really dropping dropping over the cliff. Um, And that was alarming. So we were really glad that this climate beneficial market allowed many of them to um, have a stable outlet for their will that they wouldn't have had. And that's now continuing now that that structure was in place. That's fantastic. So I'm interested in, are are we seeing some of the larger clothing manufacturers interested or is it still very niche? Um, I would say both. Um, One of the the first um, climate beneficial wool products to go to market at a larger scale was through the North Face who developed a a line um, they called the, the Cali wool collection and they made hats and jackets out of wool that was sourced from Northern California from one of the um, first ranches we worked with that developed a carbon farm plant at a really large scale. Um, so that got a, a lot of attention and excitement um, to see a brand like that engaged. They're also just very recently, um, another brand um, that we've been working with launched a collection um, their, their company is called Co-Collection, and um, they just launched a very high-end luxury um, line with some wool sourced from Sonoma, Solano County, um, and that was featured in Vogue. There's the the um, fashion industry is really picking up on the potential for this to, um, you know, 
offer a different a different path forward for fashion and textiles. Um, it it has been something so counter to health, um, both of humans and the environment. And yeah. the idea that we could clothe ourselves in a way that is actually helpful and healing to our landscapes um, and healing and helpful to our to our own personal yeah. ecologies. That's um, exciting yeah. to people. I think it's exciting to consider that at this time of year because those temperatures are just starting, right, to cool off a little bit. The morning has me wearing a sweater right now. Um, yeah. Not that that's the only thing you could make out of wool, but um, it definitely gets me thinking. And Heather, I just have to ask, I see, I know this is a radio show, but you are wearing a beautiful kind of fawny colored, um, I think it's a sweater. It looks almost cowlick. Oh. It's I, I wonder, <laughs> yeah, would you like to share something about that with us? I just feel like it's so pretty. Oh, I'd love to hear. Thank you. Well, this is actually something I knit myself, so it didn't come <gasps> from a company um, that we're working with. But this is from one of our um, longtime Fiber Shed community members, um, Mary Pettisarly, who has a line of yarn she makes out of Napa Valley called uh, Twirl Yarn. Um, so this is from her Napa, Napa Valley sheep. Oh, that's fantastic. So for those of our listeners who perhaps are crafty and enjoy working with wool, um, they can source the wool that they might work with from California as well. I know that's not necessarily what you walk into your yarn shop and find straight ahead of you, but if you look, right, it's possible to find that. Absolutely. And and we have so many different breeds of wool being being raised here in Northern California that, that for a knitter who, you know, is excited to both trace the source of their yarn back to a farm and into a landscape into um, that you know community of, of humans and land mm -hmm. but also to to be able to have choices in the type of wool based on breed um, that can provide so many different qualities um, for different types of projects we have such a wealth of resources here and in the fiber shed um, producer community we have a lot of our producers on just on our fiber shed website um, who who advertise the work that they're doing um, we have a directory of producers and then we also um, support a cooperative um, marketing website that's been developed um, by the producer community itself as a as a for-profit cooperative business called the uh, fiber shed marketplace and there's a lot of yarn for sale there fantastic so it's not too hard for folks to access some of the, the product that we've just been talking about. That's so right. I just want to throw us, I, I, although I really, I, I love, I thank you for sharing that with us because I just think it's so beautiful what, what you're wearing right now and understanding the full story only makes it even more glorious, right? Um, so one of the practices you've mentioned within this carbon, carbon farm plan and um, in fact, something that we've actually just adopted here at um, Hopland Research and Extension Center is a hedgerow. So can you help me understand how a hedgerow, how is that of any use? <laughs> and how does it fit in with, with some sheep or uh, some other animal that you might be deriving fiber from? How do these things all fit into that system? Well, we love that you have put this hedgerow in at the Hopland Research and Education Center, um, you know, in concert with your sheep system, because um, we see it as being such a beautifully compatible practice for for sheep operations. Um, and many of the of the sheep ranches that we work with have have put in hedgerows for a long time. Um, hedgerows can be um, 
just on their own, an incredible source of biodiversity for the ecosystem on the farm. Um, but just from the sheep perspective and the wool perspective, um, they can be a great way to have additional forage provided um, for sheep. And so we're working with a lot of farms and ranches that are putting in hedgerows with very specific uh, plant uh, species compositions that are chosen for having forage potential. Um, many of our producers um, like to put in natural dye plants into their hedgerows. If they're raising wool that they know is going to be turned into yarn, um, they love to have something coming right off their land that they can dye it with. And I know in your hedgerow um, at Atrec, you have um, incorporated several plants that are great for natural dyeing. Um, yeah, yeah. Like yeah we're excited. And yeah, goldenrod and some toyon, um, and I think some others that you you probably know way better than I do. <laughs> yeah, I saw coyote brush on the list, which is a great source of natural yellow, and um, elderberry can be used for dyeing as well. Yeah, we're we're excited to collaborate with you on some natural dye projects from that hedgerow. Yeah. So, um, and it, you know, I always find it interesting. I, obviously, you may notice from my accent that I'm not a California person originally. Um, However, I do come from a landscape which is very rich in hedgerows. Yes. And I, I've often found it interesting how I love what you just described about there are times when the hedgerow is forage. Now, of course, it's also a barrier for the sheep. Right. But um, it, once it's grown to a certain point, it's still going to provide that barrier, but also potentially provide some kind of um, fuel for them, right? Something for them to eat as well. Right, for whether it's just um, browsing on the edge of a fence line or through deliberately coppicing the plants um, and using that as um, as a kind of perennial source of, of plant material that might be able to give them some something fresh to eat at a time of year when the grass is getting a lot drier and, and more sparse. Just a reminder that the time is 7.30 p.m. and you are listening to The Ecology Hour on KZYX as we explore our fibre shed with Heather Podol. Yeah, well, we're really excited um, in the spring of next year to be hopefully planning an event with you guys where folks can come out and see the hedgerow and hopefully see what um, using the natural dyes looks like as well. We're, we're really excited about that. So watch this space. We'll let folks know as soon as we've got dates for that planned. Um, so Heather, I think you've guided me through a lot of the concepts here. One thing I feel like we haven't, talked a little bit more deeply about um, so many ways in which Fibershed is working with this community, um, both the producers and those who are interested in accessing this as a product and understanding how um, our use of fiber impacts our landscape. Um, how do people get involved with, with Fibershed? So maybe I'm not somebody who has a, a piece of land but I, I care about this. Are, are there ways that folks would get involved with you? You want to share a bit about that? Yeah, thank you. So in addition to our producer program, that's, that's really oriented towards serving um, fiber producers, we have a lot of education and outreach programs as well. So um, one of our, our core mission areas is to help connect people um, who are wearing and using textiles with the source of where they um, are coming from. So we uh, actually just opened a learning center. Um, this is now our Fibershed headquarters um, that's here outside of Point Reyes Station. And we're increasingly able to offer classes here, um, ranging from natural dye classes to clothing mending and 
um, other aspects of, of dye and textile um, skills. Um, and then we also have events throughout the year that are educational in nature for people to understand some of the bigger issues around our textile and fiber and farming landscapes. Um, so uh, we have every year a symposium in November um, that brings together speakers. Usually um, most of our speakers are, are coming from California with a few people from out of the region, but last year and this year, having had to adopt a virtual format because of COVID, we've been able to bring in speakers from all over the world. So that's gonna be the case again this year um, in November's symposium. So, um, um, really important voices um, speaking about the whole spectrum of the textile industry from, um, from the farming side to garment workers and to um, some of the communities in Africa that are dealing with a lot of the textile waste coming from other countries, um, often from our country, being exported as um, clothing donations, but um, not often with our full awareness of the impact of those donations. So we're going to be looking um, at that whole spectrum of the textile system and the impacts on both human and natural communities. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I think it's one of those areas um, I think about this often whenever I put something in the recycle um, bin here that I, I, I'm very hopeful, right, about what's going to happen yeah, to it. Right. And probably the same with the clothing that I take to one of those donation places of how wonderfully it's going to be received and how it's, you know, they're going, it's going to be so easily turned into something that's useful for somebody. And, and that probably isn't the case. Um, Right. <laughs> it's it's a complex system. And as important as it is to to keep our clothes in use. Um, yeah, that donation system is is getting very overwhelmed um, by the, the rate of consumption that we've adopted pretty widely across our society. So it's important for us to look at that and understand where those those textiles are going. The other thing I just wanted to mention is um, from what I know, you know, we're very lucky here in California to have fiber shed based here. Uh, are you seeing similar um, examples across the US, similar kind of um, uh, systems or, or groups who are coming together across the US or even internationally? Yeah, so we have a um, fiber shed affiliate program that um, helps to network other communities like ours in Northern California who are trying to mobilize um, resources and capacity and um, supply chains um, within their, their fiber sheds, their geographies. And so right now we have about 35 affiliate communities around the world. Um, many of them are in the United States. That's the, the largest concentration, but we have quite a few in Canada, in Europe, um, India, Australia. There's um, wow. a growing number of these communities who, who are building such beautiful capacity and connection um, in their regional areas. Mm. It's pretty amazing what you guys have managed to achieve. Can I ask how long has Cybershed been in existence for? Um, just about 10 years. This is about the 10-year mark. To have achieved what you've achieved in that period of time is absolutely fantastic. And I think it, it must go to show that people do care deeply about this and that, that we are starting to hope to, to recognise um, the thought we need to put into not just our food and our water, but also our fiber. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that it, it's a hopeful message that resonates with people um, that we can do things 
in a way that that nourishes us and nourishes the land. It's it's not just a story of all the um, the challenges we're facing, but it's really a story of of how can we do things in a way that that feeds us and and feeds our environment. Hmm. Heather, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Ecology Hour today, and we look forward to having you back on in the future. I'm sure we will be doing. Thank you, Hannah. I just wanted to mention also that the um, symposium this year is November 13th. I forgot to give the date when I was talking about it earlier. John Bailey um, from ATREC will be speaking about the work you're doing with your hedgerow, and it's part of the agenda, and um, we will be advertising that and hope that people will join us on that day. And so where would people go to get their tickets or to find out more? Tickets will be on sale starting October 14th, um, and they'll be available through our website, um, www.fibershed.org. Great. Okay. And thanks so much again, Heather. We'll look forward to seeing you in the future. Thank you, Hannah. Well, thanks so much to Heather. You can find out more about Fibershed by visiting their website at www.fibershed.org. Now, Heather mentioned the benefits of adding a hedgerow to a landscape. We're going to hear a little bit more detail on what it takes to add and grow a hedgerow from John Bailey, director at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre. I started by asking John to explain little about what motivated the addition of a hedgerow to the site at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. Yeah, we've installed a 400-foot uh, hedgerow using native California plants, and it stretches along one of our roads just outside the center. It's a great spot for education, and we put it on one of our rangeland pastures uh, because we're really trying to demonstrate how you can increase biodiversity on your rangeland. Um, I think the inspiration was just looking around at Hopland and seeing where we've had sheep for 70, 80, 100 years, um, the, the sheep are great at reducing fine fuels and great for grazing in that circumstance. They also can really take down a lot of vegetation. And so just thinking about how do we increase the diversity of our site, this opportunity came up where the California Healthy Soils Program has these grants to demonstrate different practices on your property that sequester carbon and then also have other goals like increasing biodiversity. So uh, this was right at the beginning of the coronavirus and all of us were locked away at home. And I said, well, let's just go for it. <laughs> Great time to write a grant, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned um, that you were hoping that this will increase biodiversity um, in the area where the hedgerow is. What other benefits are there from, from the... Um, addition of this hedgerow or that you hope might happen? Well, so one of the things that the uh, California Healthy Soils Program is aiming to do is increase carbon sequestration on a variety of agricultural operations around the state. And so really one of the goals is to increase the carbon in the soils. The way that happens with hedgerows and with all kinds of plants is that they absorb sunlight, they convert it, they absorb CO2 and um, sunlight and convert that into sugars, and then they transport those sugars down into the ground and develop roots. We've also been learning in the last couple of decades that they're sharing those carbohydrates with other life in the soil. 
that then takes that, that carbon basically and spreads it out in different layers of the soil. So um, increased soil carbon is one. Increased soil health because those plants are feeding this, this microflora and fauna in the soil. Um, and then above ground, there's a lot of other benefits too. So one is um, increased habitat and food sources for birds for uh, small reptiles, for uh, small and large mammals, uh, and for pollinator species. So those are all benefits that we're really looking at. It's pretty exciting to hear all these things that this, this one addition hopefully will make on the site. Do you have um, a method that you're hoping to actually, you know, I know that your site is a, a research site, so often folks are trying to take measurements associated with any change that takes place. So do you have any ways that you're hoping to measure to see the change that this hedgerow might make on the landscape? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we've done here is we've uh, set up the treatment, which is the hedgerow, and then we have a control area adjacent, which is the uh, uh, just great uh, grazing land, so nothing new planted there. And so then that way we can really measure the differences. And one of the things that we're looking at is soil carbon. So we did uh, soil tests in both the treatment hedgerow area and the control grazing area. Uh, and then we'll do those annually throughout the life of this three-year project. And then uh, we're also doing bird surveys once in the fall and once in the spring so that we capture both local native species and migrants. Uh, and then we're doing pollinator surveys four times a year, once in the early spring, once in the late spring, once in the summer, and once in the fall. There's just not a lot of pollinators out there in the winter. We did a first year winter survey and there was like nothing on the plants. So, um, and it's great because we've been able to bring in, um, you know, expertise. So we have uh, Chuck Vaughn, who is a longtime birder in the area, uh, was a former re uh, staff research associate here at Hopland doing the bird surveys. Uh, and then our own staff research associate, Allison Smith, is doing the, the soil samples and sending those off to labs. Uh, and then we've got Dr. Gordon Frankie from Berkeley, and he and his team are doing the pollinator surveys. And they've got great expertise. I mean, oh my God, it's so hard to like classify different bees. I mean, they just have to look with a microscope and have all this different knowledge about how many hairs above that joint. So I'm really glad we've got these other people on board. It's not just honeybees and yellow jackets out there, is it? There's right. a whole load more to it. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested. So you've had to start this hedgerow from scratch pretty much, right? Right. So has it gone smoothly? Do you have already this flourishing big hedgerow? Where are you at at this stage? Um, I'd say in general it's going well. I think uh, one of the difficult things is to make the right plant choices. And what we're really trying to do is demonstrate hedgerows. So I didn't want to just do like one type of plant and do six, you know, six different plants mixed for the whole length um, because people had different sites. So you might have a dry hot site with really rocky soil or you might have a more riparian site where you've got access to water and it's a little cooler. So mm -hmm. what we tried to do is uh, create a demonstration where you've got areas that are chaparral species, areas that are more riparian species. Um, mostly we're using local natives but um, we also do uh, bring in a few natives from different areas of the state because there's a whole range of benefits of different species across the state. We've had a, f a few more plant failures than I was hoping. You know, that just happens. And so in the budget, we allocated a bunch of money to buy plants up front 
and then have more money to do replacements for the first couple of years. Um, so we're having to do a little bit more of that than I hoped. And then also there's just um, differing opinions. You know, you get some experts in a room and they're going to have like all different opinions. Uh, and so the pollinator guy really wants pollinator species and the local plant people really want local native species. And, uh, and then there's some species that are uh, better for other benefits that I didn't even mention earlier, like uh, shade for your animals, windbreaks uh, to stabilize the soil and hold back erosion, to form a physical barrier. So if you really just wanted to plant the hedgerow to keep your animals from moving somewhere. Um, and so negotiating through all those different opinions and then making some final decisions and then actually finding the plants. Um, you know, the first year we weren't able to find some species because during coronavirus, so many people were working on their home gardens that nurseries were like sold out of everything. Wow. So that was a, an unexpected challenge. But So I'm, I'm guessing that one of the things that makes your site and this project a great project for folks is that you're seeing these problems and then you're sharing out how you deal with them because these problems are the kind of things that right. anybody could deal with right yep yep so, and that's one of the things about this is that it's a demonstration project and so we really are trying to layer in that education component wherever we can so we've done a couple of webinars already i'm going to be presenting at the ecofarm conference in january uh we're working with this group fiber shed that really tries to create sustainable um fiber ecosystems from production through to finished product uh, and so we're we've got a newsletter article coming out about that we're going to present at their conference where we're really targeting other uh, sheep producers in the area so that education part is really important and and then so full transparency of like yeah we screwed up this we'd never picked that plant again or you know here's some considerations for your site yeah and i guess it depends on the the individual site and also perhaps you said that you have these different experts in the room and different people have different views on things and that would be the same for a landowner right or a land manager that they may have something that there is their kind of personal priority and they want to see and that's maybe how they'll do some of their plant selection a little bit more too yeah yeah and it's interesting you know i mean it's it's uh good to have thick skin when you're working on a project with a lot of collaborators or you're putting it out to the public view because you know i've had people come out and they're in a, like what the hell are you guys doing with this? Like, you've got like a riparian species and a chaparral. What are you doing? And it's like, well, we're demonstrating what you can do. And, and it made it a little more complicated because, you know, setting up an irrigation system that will manage dry land plants who only want maybe water once in the summer, if at all, and then others that are going to want more regular irrigation. So um, that was a little bit of an extra challenge of just grouping those. But um, I think it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. And at the moment, you, so what you're seeing from the hedgerow now is that, yes, some plants haven't made it, but otherwise you're seeing things growing up well and, and coming along. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the bigger disappointments is uh, we, we planted these coffee berry plants, which are great because they're, they're drought tolerant, they're really good for pollinators, uh, and they're also a dye plant. And they're just kind of sitting there, not doing very much. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can replace them with some more coffee berry that thrive probably, you know, in some cases, it's worth investing in the five-gallon plants, mm -hmm. even though they're more expensive because you get like two years jump start. Mm -hmm. uh, so we might look at some of that here too. I can imagine it's also been a challenge in setting this up in a, a horrific drought year. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, it is. And luckily, we have a really good spring here at Hopland, and so we're able to irrigate. But we did go for you know just really good drip mm -hmm. emitters. 
um, and are really trying to be judicious in how much water we put out. Mm -hmm. And then we also, in the planting design, did sheet mulch to block weeds and then a couple layers of mulch on top of that of compost and wood chips, which really helps any evaporation from the soil. Mm -hmm. So the water that you put on the plant really stays and nourishes that plant. Excellent, because again, it's the expectation is that landowners who might be thinking of putting these plants in on their they'll be facing a similar future. So very right. drought tolerant and practices that consider drought tolerance are going to be important, right? Yeah, and that's partially why we did uh, California Natives. I mean, just in general, if you're going to increase biodiversity in your area, putting in plants that thrive in that area and have evolved with the pollinator species so that when those plants flower, it's at the right time in the life cycle of the pollinator, that's important. Um, but also most California natives are drought tolerant. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm talking about more riparian plants um, like snowberry or elderberry, um, they don't have high water requirements. Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to grow like a lush garden of bamboo or something mm -hmm. like that. So it's funny because from coming from England, I think of hedgerows, I, we're very, I'm very used to hedgerows being around and they're used as a, um, a barrier to stop your sheep or you stop getting out and they're quite likely to be thorny and very difficult to get through. And what I see here is quite a different thing, but you can be using these hedgerows to stop the stock from getting out or would you always have it coupled with a fence? And I guess my other question that goes along with that is, do the stock browse the hedgerow? What, what what other ways can it interact with the stock? Right. So so we definitely fenced this area, um, and we'll probably leave it up in the long run because we did put in species that you might not want to have in a grazing area because they're just going to get decimated by the by the livestock. Um, but then there are other plants that we put in that could be barrier plants. So. Like here on the coast, we have coast whitethorn, and we have buckbrush, and we have California uh, rose, and those are really thorny plants that will weave together and make this mesh. So that was one of those demonstration things of there's ways you can increase biodiversity with natives and have something that your sheep won't browse. And then there's other things where you might want to fence off an area and you already have a fence because you, you want a barrier from your neighbor and it's just easy to put in a hedgerow there. Mm -hmm. So, um, w But in our case, we'll probably leave it up so that this can be a long-term demonstration of different possibilities. Excellent. So if you had, um, and I'm aware that there is going to be opportunities for um, folks who think they might be interested in adding a hedgerow to their land, um, we're, ho we're hoping to do an actual field day where folks can visit in the spring at some point. Um, but if you had like the top three tips that you'd give somebody who was considering this, and I know you've covered some of them in the conversation so far, but what would you say those might be? I think you'd really have to look at what your site could tolerate and what resources you have to put into it. So if you don't have irrigation, that's going to be a, a big difference. So really making sure, do you, if I have water, great, I can take this subset of plants. Um, what are my goals? Like, am I really focusing on just pollinators? Because mm -hmm. if I am, well, then I'm going to choose a different suite of plants mm -hmm. than if I'm trying to make a physical barrier. Um, those would be a couple of main ones. Um, you know, money is always a, an issue. So um, the more intensive of a planting that you do and the more you have to fence it, the more money it's going to cost. So if, you, if you're really tight on budget, well, you're going to want plants that don't require irrigation, that are going to stand up to browsing. Um, and then if you're trying to create a certain effect, like you want to block the view from the neighbor's place or you want to provide shade for your animals. So really like figuring out what are your resources that you have? What are your goals to achieve? Um, 
And then I really think, especially in California, making sure that you take into account low maintenance and um, and water savings. So a drip irrigation system that's not creating a lot of weeds around your whole site and um, mulching heavily because that's really going to help both the soil health and keep the plant roots cool and help conserve water mm. and block weeds. So I, I, I'm happy that you brought that budget because I'm... Um... I'm keen to understand whether this could be uh, financially beneficial for somebody. Um, you mentioned a grant that you access for this. Is that something that would be available to others? I mean, I can imagine somebody um, would be fascinated by this and keen to um, have these beneficial um, elements on their landscape, but it would be a challenge financially. Right. So um, there's a really good book out there that's um, Hedgerows for California Agriculture. And the California Alliance of Family Farmers puts it out, and it talks a lot about budgeting concerns and costs and all. Um, I think that there's also good pots of money out there from different government sources to help increase the working land's health and ecosystem function. So, um, like, if you go to your local USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service office, they have an ECIP program, which is Environmental Quality Incentive Program, mm -hmm. and um, they will do cost share up to 75% to implement different practices on your landscape. And then the California Healthy Soils Program also does implementation grants where they will help pay for implementing practices on your property, including covering some of your labor. Mm -hmm. So um, I think those are some really good sources for it. In terms of economic benefit, um, if you're a strict grazing operation and you're trying to eke out any amount of money you can just from your sheep um, or your cattle, uh, that it would be probably difficult to economically justify that way. Mm. Um, but there are ways that you can plant plants that have an economic return. So like we've put in um, blue elderberry, which you can harvest and there's a, a fairly good price point for those, those products. Um, you can also plant other floral species where you might be able to sell the, the flowers. Uh, and then there's various herbal species that you can incorporate into your hedgerow. So, you know, you don't have to go with California natives. I mean, those, if you're really trying to go for ecosystem benefits, it's probably best to go with natives but you could incorporate and build hedgerows out of other plants that have marketable crops that come mm. off of them. Mm, that's exciting. And it's amazing just all the things that you've talked about that this hedgerow will hopefully be able to do. It's, it's very multifunctional, isn't it? It's pretty exciting. Yeah, well, and like you said, there's a huge history. I mean, in England, yeah, you, you, they just grow. You get rainfall there, <laughs> so it's easier. Um, but, you know, hedgerows have been used in agriculture for years to, like, block wind... To, to change the microclimates in your area, to, to provide physical barriers for the movement of animals. Uh, and so it's a it's an age-old practice. I mean, it was really kind of cool looking around, especially when I was working on designing the sign and just seeing there's like organizations in Ireland that are just all about hedgerows and let's plant them and let's go out and volunteer on the weekend and just put hedgerows in. And um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a, a worldwide practice. I know that one of the skills that um, I hear about back in the UK is hedge laying and just kind of weaving it together and getting that barrier together is like an ancient and incredible skill, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. So um, just to finish off, I one of the things you mentioned early in the conversation was that you recognize that having sheep in an area can have an impact on the biodiversity in these, you know, in these rangeland areas. Are there other things, other tools that you're trying to use to help to balance that out? 
Well, you know, it's it's really interesting to to hear from some of the rangeland ecologists that we work with that rotational grazing actually will increase the biodiversity of your pastures. So it's not that that livestock are detrimental overall, um, but that rotational aspect is important. And so um, setting up your property where you can rotate your animals through different pastures and not have them everywhere all the time is is a great way to increase biodiversity on your property so um, you know cross fencing in some areas or using electrical fences to do exclosures Um, so maybe you have like a riparian area that once a year it's really good to get your sheep in there and help clear out some of the thatch so plants can grow up Um, and that's kind of what we're finding on the rangelands in general is that by bringing in the livestock and pulses, you're imitating the old ecosystem function of herds of elk or deer that would then get moved from area to area by predators. And, and then that way the plants, they get browsed down, they have a chance to regenerate when the animals are gone, they'll generate new roots in the soil, and then when the animals come through and graze, it will stimulate root growth in the soil and, and then stimulate new growth on the surface. So um, it's really, uh, key to to make sure that you're managing your livestock in a way that helps your property at the same time as earns a a living for you well fantastic thanks so much for sharing the information we look forward to hearing more about the hedgerow as you get more measurements and hear more about the how the biodiversity is increased yeah well thanks for having me on the show (laughs) i appreciate it well thank you so much to our folks who joined this evening heather podol from the non-profit fiber shed and also to john bailey from the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre. If you'd like to find out more about your fibre shed, you can take a look on the fibre shed website at www.fibershed.org. And you could also reach out to your local resource conservation district or NRCS office, where you can find out more about some of the grants that may be available to support you if you'd like to add a hedgerow on your garden or ranch. Thanks so much for listening to this evening's edition of the Ecology Hour and I look forward to speaking with you again next month. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email hbird, H-B-I-R-D, at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.